Welcome to the All About the Customer podcast brought to you by Influtive, where we talk with customer-obsessed people to uncover how you can be more customer-focused. I'm your host, Dan Calmore. Today, I'm joined by Manuel Harnish. Manuel is a serial startup junkie who most enjoys helping young companies and founders to develop and grow their customer success motions. He's currently VP of Customer Success at People Data Labs. On the personal side, he's been making the most of the COVID years by shedding 100 pounds and spending more time with those who matter most in his life. I mentioned he's VP of CS at People Data Labs, which is a data as a service company focused on democratizing access to rich, high quality and fidelity data about individuals and companies. They power some of the world's most innovative HR, recruiting and fraud products and businesses. Based on that description alone, I'm sure it's obvious that their product is pretty technical in nature, which leads us into today's topic, how you bridge your technical and CS teams to better serve your customers. Setting your customers up for success is always difficult, which is why CS teams exist. But having a highly technical product can lead to challenges, since many customer success managers aren't engineers, and engineers often aren't CS folks. Manuel has figured out how to bring together these teams, and he's got a few thoughts on how you can do the same to make for happier, more successful customers. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, hey, Dan. Very excited to be here. Let's start off talking about why customer success is so much more difficult when you have a really technical product. Obviously, you know, keeping customers happy and, and successful is a tall order in any business. But why do you think it's so much more difficult when your core product that you're offering or service is really technical in nature? Yeah, I think it comes down to the customers that you're ultimately serving. A technical product tends to have very technical users on the other end. And this can be either programmers, engineers, it can be folks that are on a networking side, different constituents, if you will. And a lot of times, the lift there in terms of getting those people what they're looking for, which is somebody on your team as the vendor to be also technical, is a challenge, right? Because if you look at the customer success landscape and a lot of the job postings, they're all looking for CSMs. Now, CSMs, are awesome. We absolutely need them and we have them here at People Data Labs. But CSMs are primarily business focused. They have the relationships, they you know, coordinate the meetings, they drive the agendas and things like that. But a lot of them are not super technical. And quite frankly, that is not necessarily their forte either, right? They're meant to do some of the relationship side of the house. And so finding people that can help customers on the technical side and can actually speak at their level of expertise and also built that credibility can be a little hard, right? It's almost like the purple squirrel analogy. You want an engineer that also wants to be able to talk to customers, which a lot of them are great at writing code and that's what they do, or they're very focused on one or two technical things and they're like really deep into that, but they don't have the wherewithal to really talk to customers. And then there's other folks that are not super technical, but are great in front of customers. And so you have to find that balance or that archetype of people. I think that's why it's so tough to support customers in a technical company because those resources are far and few in between. There's not a lot of people that are looking in that space right now. And I'm not familiar with this purple squirrel analogy. Is it that, you know, an, an engineer who is also a CSM is as rare as a purple squirrel or what, what is what is the analogy? Yeah, I think this was coined a couple of years ago by recruiters, right? You're looking for a purple squirrel. It's like it's somebody that can do everything. It's an archetype that is just very hard to recruit for. Now, I think the original purple squirrel analogy came from like, I want an engineer that has 20 years experience and is 25, which is obviously impossible. It's not quite as bad in this space, but it's definitely hard to fill and also to explain to people. 
And so we'll, we'll certainly get into what you've done at People Data Labs. But when you talk about this challenge, I'm sure there's probably different ways that in theory you could tackle it, right? I mean, you could try to find a CSM or an engineer and kind of train them on the opposite side of that, right? Like teach an engineer how to you know do the CS side or teach a CS person how to get really technical. I'm sure that probably kind of presents its own problems because, you know, engineers have gone to school for a long time. It's not something you can just, you know, train in a month. Or the other side is probably, I think we're going to get into is, is, you know, kind of trying to merge these two teams into this kind of holistic view. Yeah, for sure. And, and the other thing to sort of differentiate is like pre and post sales engineers. There is the idea of sales engineers or solution engineers and people call them solution architects. There's a couple of different role descriptions for them. And they're actually, it's a much more established role and, and type. Sales engineers have been around for 30 some years. I think Cisco was one of the first companies that sort of started that, which are technical pre-sales engineers, folks that are technical and understand the technology, but are also salesy enough. I think on the post-sale side, you actually have to be a little less salesy and you have to be more solution-focused and consultative and build that trusted advisor relationship with your customers. SEs on the pre-sale side, they're very attracted to the come in, sell a customer on the technical merits of, of the product, and then move on and then find another customer or another prospect, right? And that's great. But having the relationship post-sales and running with that after the fact, only so many people want to do that, right? Because it is a little bit less glamorous. It's also not necessarily as lucrative, depending on the account managers you're working with and so forth. So it's, it's a little different. Manuel has a great vision for how to merge these technical and CS teams, which we'll get to in a minute. But there's already starting to be a trend in other companies where sales, CS, and support teams, or some combination of that, are beginning to fall under the same umbrella for greater alignment, which makes sense since they're all customer-facing teams. People Data Labs has taken a similar approach here. What we've done here at People Data Labs, we actually have one sort of umbrella organization that is part of customer success that we call Technical Services. That side of the house is led by my technical services manager right now, and he manages both the pre-sales and the post-sales engineers, so the SEs and the CSEs, and then we have one solution architect, senior solution architect as well, that kind of is the technical quarterback for, for both of those functions. What that does is it creates more alignment between getting prospects in, qualifying them, making sure that they are a good fit for our product and ultimately also a good fit for us technically in the post-sales realm. And then we have the CSEs on that same team focused together with the CSMs on taking care of those customers that we ultimately win as part of the sales cycle. By doing that, we have very tight alignment. There's very few times nowadays where we may have sold something pre-sales that we can't deliver post-sales or there's just consternation on the customer side or we did a poor job at qualifying their technical capabilities. And so we've been able over the last year or so really kind of tighten down the quality of customers that ultimately come through and that can you know achieve success with our product. So let's go into this journey you've gone on to kind of develop this new framework. So I'd love to learn about the opportunities that you saw taking over CS for PDL to kind of get us there. Can you talk about the framework that you use when you're just starting in a CS organization? You're trying to figure out where are the gaps? Where do we fit within the company? What are we good at? What do we need to improve on? Like what framework do you approach this with? And then we can kind of uncover what those gaps you saw were. Yeah, I think it's all about how do we get to where we are? Every company that I tend to take a look at has achieved some level of success. They're not still trying to figure out some level of market fit. They've made sales. They kind of got things going. And so then it's a question of like, well, how do we achieve that so far? What types of deals have we done? What types of personalities do we have on the sales side? 
what if any CS motion exists today? And it's interesting. A lot of times companies don't have any CS motion or a very, very innocent one. And then the last piece, so it's really about people. What kind of people do you have? What sort of processes are in place today, if any? And then also like what is the tool stack and what does the product look like? If you have a very technical product, you have to ask questions around like, well, is there any sort of self-serve or some of your customers coming to your website and just signing up and, and trying it out? Or is it a, a very technical lift initially to get people going? And so you kind of take a look at that and then any other tools that you have to sort of support that, whether it's marketing automation, you know, CRM, ticking systems, CS platforms and things along those lines. I tend to take a look at all of that and obviously talk to everybody that's there to understand like, hey, what's been working, right? And where do you see gaps and where do you see opportunities as a result of that? So at a very high level, that's the framework that I try to apply. And, and I do this even for, uh, for folks that are just looking for coaching. The people part of the equation, which is difficult to say the people part of the equation, is arguably the most important. Later in our conversation, Manuel speaks to his philosophies regarding the importance of putting your internal teams above everything else. But in the meantime, I was curious how he figures out the people side. How does he uncover what CS reps are good at, where there's room for improvement, and when he's joining an organization? If it's the most important part of the equation, how do you get it right? Well, companies I entertain possibly joining, I try to do a lot of that even in the interview phase. What I think can be difficult if you don't talk to the potential team that you're inheriting, or you, you don't have an understanding of what's in place by the time that you join. Now, I think most companies that I've looked at and then ultimately decided to go with are 30, 40, maybe 50 people. So, you know, sending out a survey is kind of impersonal at that level, right? And so it's more a matter of having discussions, having conversations, both with your own team, if there is folks that are kind of already there, and then also with leadership as well as other parts of the company, whether that's the product team, the engineering team, you know, obviously the sales team, and then any sort of supporting functions like marketing and possibly finance, depending on how far that's developed. And one thing that you had said in a, a previous conversation when, you know, trying to suss out what other teams can support CS, is you said, like, how many requests does CS get that they can't handle within CS? Can you expand on that a little bit? When I first came to People Data Labs, a lot of times, both pre-sales and post-sales, the team that was in place and I was sort of supporting and also the sales team had to go to the product team a lot of the times to answer either customer questions or scoping, what is the right license that we need to apply here. We have a very sort of bespoke product. It's very use case driven. The intricacies are pretty detailed depending on who you are as a customer. And so a lot of those things ultimately had to be answered by the product team. And also you had you know, a lot of engineering questions like, hey, what about this thing in this endpoint? Like, can you give us more details here? Or, hey, you know, we've seen more and more API calls that are going bad. Can you tell us what's going on? And so there wasn't a lot of technical muscle, if you will, on the customer facing side of the house to self-serve those things. And what I mean by that is like to get your own answers, basically. And so there was a bit of a, um, not a rift, but certainly a gap between what we wanted to be as a customer team focused on getting revenue and ultimately delivering great value and, and customer happiness and reality, which was like, hey, we had to go to the product team very often. And so that was a big thing that I certainly was tasked with when, when I first came in. It's like, hey, you know, this is what's happening, product team. Lots of talking to customers, but that's not their main job all day, every day. There's other things that need to happen. So what, if anything, could be done to basically become self-sufficient? And so as part of that, early on, really over-indexed on bringing in technical resources that 
either had a background in APIs and programming in the data space, which is relatively new, so that was a little harder to, to accomplish. Just any folks that could figure out things like Elasticsearch and the tech stack that we had internally, and that were also able to talk to customers to ultimately build that technical muscle and that know-how on our side so we could still rely on the product team where it made sense, but not be the first call to action to, to go to the product engineering team and instead address a lot of these things in-house. Can you dive a little bit deeper into what that transition looks like? Like, were you taking existing people and saying like, hey, you now have a new role and you're on the CS team? Or was it more of a, there, there's kind of consultants that come in and educate? What did that actual transition look like in those early days of you trying to get more technical muscle on the CS team as you described it? Yeah, boy, lots of thoughts there and, and lots of anxiety and nightmare affecting back. What was nice here is we had one particular person that basically was doing pre and post sales engineering anyway before I joined. He was gracious enough to continue supporting us in that effort while we were also going out and doing the hiring and sort of the transition planning and so forth. They had also brought on the first pre-sales engineer SE type a couple months before I joined. So he started taking more of the load and kind of being the backup to the person that I described. We call him Little Ben. That was the OG person that was doing all of these things. And so effectively, what I say is, look, I know this sucks right now. I know you're being pulled into all of these different directions, but you have commitment from my side and also from the rest of the revenue team that we're going to make this better and we're going to hire capacity, which, uh, which is ultimately what we did. And then once we had the first few people on, it was all about like, okay, Ben, now you need to go ahead and actually train these folks. Like, help me get them successful. Help me help you. Because the sooner we get that done, the sooner we can get you out of all of these tedious conversations, you know, take up a lot of your time and then ultimately don't accomplish the things that you're looking to accomplish with other things you're doing. So that's kind of how we looked at it. A lot of that has to do with building personal relationships and saying, hey, it's going to get better, right? Yeah, give us a little bit of time here and then showing constant progress. I mean, I think back Q1 of 2021, I joined January 11th and I believe over the first quarter, I've hired seven people, which was insanity, right? And I don't recommend that anybody does that at that scale that quickly, unless they absolutely have to, but we really had to do that. We're better for it now, and we're in a much more stabilized situation. We're going to continue to hire. In fact, we're hiring for two sales engineers and two customer success engineers right now. So if you know anybody or you want to apply, go take a look at the website. And just to hop in here, if you want to see their current job postings, you can go to the careers page on their website, which is peopledatalabs.com. But I was curious to know, as they hire these technical folks for the CS team, what did those hires look like? Was it the same types of people they looked to hire on the product side before this transition began? Or were they looking for engineers with a bit of a CS flair? Do you need to think differently about hiring technical people who will sit under CS? have a lot of customers that are either data scientists or they're engineers building products with what we ultimately deliver, which is APIs around people data and company data, as well as for, for data scientists, it's more of a flat file, right? You can look at it in, in aggregate. I really wanted to get people that had some of that background. They are either developers themselves, but you know are happy to have conversations and generally very sociable, or folks that have math or data science background. We were very lucky in the sense that we found somebody as a senior solution architect sort of being that quarterback that I mentioned earlier that had that math and data science background, but also could talk to customers where that made sense and kind of became the quarterback for the team. And then 
we looked a little bit more at generalists when it came to the, the sales engineers uh, or the solution engineers, because that is a little bit more of an easier skill to find, right? It's more established, but also because we did have that quarterback being the SSA, we knew that they could go to that person if there was any technical things that they couldn't address. And then on the CSE side, we had one person that actually came as part of the transition that was already on the team. And he shed some of the responsibilities of running the team and being more of a leadership role there. And it really focused on what he loved the best, which was solving big technical challenges and talking to customers. And so as part of all of that, all the pieces kind of fell into place to, to accomplish what we were looking for. And then we really defined the roles more tightly as we went forward. Initially, like the SEs were doing CSE work, which is kind of like pulling everybody in as much as we needed to in order to accomplish outcomes for customers. But as time went on, we got more resources. We ended up specializing a little bit more and saying, hey, you know, now that we have more CSEs, every time setting up a, an existing customer conversation, just pull in the CSE and leave the SE out unless it's an expansion or uh, a net new business opportunity here. So yeah, that's the transition. And so what does this new setup look like? I know kind of depending on the customer, you have kind of different setups with customer success person versus a sales engineer. Can you kind of articulate what that new setup looks like? Yeah, great. We've gone through the exercise of kind of tiering our customers. And, and tiering really is, you know, everybody does this a little differently. You know, some people call it segmentation. I, I call it tiering. But really, we serve a lot of different use cases and a lot of different sizes, if you will, in terms of customers. We have a lot of startups, a disproportionate number of startups, but we also have some large enterprises. And so right now, there wasn't really any prevailing segmentation other than how much money do they spend with us and where, where do we see the potential spend. So we went through the exercise of doing that and then basically said, all right, the biggest customers, the ones that spend the most money with us today are obviously the most valuable. They're also the most impactful if they were to leave. And they're also the, the, the most likely to expand and grow further. Now, we've since expanded that methodology and we are, we're actually sort of actively enabling small startups that are starting small, potentially be large down the line to have access to some more of those resources early on. And that's kind of like our incubator accelerator program we're thinking about. But basically for the largest customers that we call them tier ones, they have what we call the customer team. And that is comprised of the sales engineer, the DC, the data consultant. And that's basically your seller. People call them account executives, account managers. There's a couple different terms for that, but it's the seller. And that's on the pre-sale side. And then on the CS side, we have the CSM, customer success manager, and the CSE and between those four, they are the named resource for that customer. The roles and responsibilities are pretty clear. The CSM kind of owns the account relationship post-close and works very tightly with the DC to coordinate things like onboarding and quarterly business reviews. And we call them technical exchanges where we work with customers on the technical side. So they set up all of those relationships and obviously keep things like the licenses up to date and renewal conversations scheduled and so forth. And then the CSE is primary point for anything technical post-sales with that customer. And they also work very closely with their SE whenever there is an upsell or expansion opportunity that may come up in a meeting. So we do that for tier one. We also do that for tier two, which is sort of one step down from our largest customers. And then for what we call tier three and sort of velocity or growth accounts, and, and very shortly here the self-serve ones as well, they have all of that minus the named CSE on the post-sale side. And the reason for that is just capacity and we currently don't have that many technical resources there but they have a named csm they can set up time with them they have basically one contact point for everything that's related to us and then that csm is empowered to pull in any additional resources on the team to address any things for that customer and be proactive as well as reactive and so 
walk me through what the process looks like if I'm a tier one customer. Is everything flowing through a CSM? Do I go to one person if I have a technical question, one person if I have a more business question? Like, what does that flow look like if I'm a customer who has an issue that I'm trying to resolve or just how am I served? It's one of these things that is certainly evolving. But right now, what we want to do is we want to have one point of contact that you engage with, and that is really your CSM. Now, your CSM will most likely loop in your CSE, right, and your DC, depending on what the thing is, almost immediately. Or they may not, right? They may be able to address that themselves. But that is really your primary point of contact. Now, some customers will copy the engineers. You know, some customers will just do what they do, right? And that's okay. We want to meet the customer where they're at and what they're looking for. But ultimately, every one of our large customers and, and also some of the smaller ones, they have one named resource that we tell them this is who you want to reach out to for really anything related to PDL. And they're also the ones that will reach out proactively to you. We have a new release. We tend to release quarterly, although we're, we're coming down to a monthly cadence now. They're the ones that are the originator of any communications and the reply to when it comes to any messages that come from us. So that is what we try to do. It's really a high-touch model, but also... That's just necessitated by the fact that our customers want to have, you know, a, a primary point of contact. Right. Yeah, I would imagine for a customer, it's probably kind of difficult sometimes to know where the lines blur between. Is this too technical of a question? So I would imagine just having that single point of contact uh, probably simplifies that relationship a little bit for them. And then on your end, you're almost this black box where it's like, you don't care how this gets solved for the customer. Just let us know and we'll kind of triage that internally. Yeah, that's right. It's almost like the CSM is sort of the router, right? Network analogy. The packet comes in, the router figures out what to do with that packet. And uh, and that's kind of how I view the CSMs. And so if you're having the CSM route these people anyways, why bring on these technical people under CS? Why not just keep them where they were on the product side and have the CSM route them, you know, if they need to bring them in? Why do you think it's so important to have them still live on the same team? Uh, this This is a philosophical and religious question for some people. I think for me, it's a very simple answer. It's incentives drive behavior. And if you have engineers that are on the product side or on the engineering side, they automatically have other things that they need to do. It's very rare that you have a product or engineering org where engineers sit around just twiddling their thumbs waiting for input. I mean, some of those exist, but bless those people that have those jobs and, and those resources. That is not how startups work. And so by not doing that, by having them on the revenue and really the CS team, the incentives are aligned in that our engineers are dedicated to our customers. They are there. They proactively go out and work with our customers whenever they're not reacting or they're not answering questions or, or something came in on, on their plate. And so they are always thinking and working on things directly for our customers versus if you have them sitting on the engineering or the product side, that's likely not the case. There'll be product improvements that they might be working on. They might be fixing bugs. They might be writing documentation which are all very important. I will, will not discount that in any way, shape, or form. But those are not things that are necessarily moving the needle for the customer right then and there. It creates latency if you have the folks sitting on the product engineering side versus directly on the CS and revenue side. So to summarize, you need their allegiances to be up to CS and not just to the product side. Well, you need them aligned to CS, but ultimately you need them aligned to your customers. You need to do what's right in order to serve your customers. And, and that tends to be make your engineers as available as possible on the CS side. 
So in this transformation that you've undergone since joining PDL, what have you learned about doing this? You said you have anxiety and you know probably some nightmares of, of doing this transformation. What have you learned in this journey? Like, what would you do differently? What advice can you give to other people who are trying to bring more technical resources, technical muscle into their CS side? I wish I had had this conversation with PDL like a year prior, right? Like, and of course, you, you can't change time, but. PDL specifically was very successful early on with very few pre-sales and post-sales engineers, technical resources that were customer facing because everybody went to this, this person I mentioned earlier, little Ben, as we call him, because he was just available and he did everything for everybody. And while that was great, it became a crutch. And so by not having pre-sales engineers and having CCs, ultimately, as they were growing the customer base, it really created organizational debt, maybe is the right way to put that that ultimately had to be paid up very quickly. Otherwise, things would have just collapsed. And so I think the takeaway for me is, as you're building out your company and you're achieving revenue and you're starting to hit your goals, and it's really like once you get to about a million or two in ARR, you need to start thinking about how to best enable both your prospects on the technical side and your customers on the technical side as you scale up. And while there is some sellers that can be technical, those are really two separate roles. See, a lot of companies that sell purely with sellers, AEs, DCs, whatever you want to call them, and you don't have an engineer to help them. And then very similarly on the CS and post-sale side, they only have CSMs and they don't have an engineer that can help them, whether it's dedicated or a pooled resource. And I think that's a mistake. Customers are much more sophisticated these days. Buyers, they know by and large what they want. They need to be you know, supported in the decision-making process and ultimately in the implementation process. But the days of like, oh, we just need sellers to go out and educate the market and dialing for dollars, while that still needs to happen and we have SDRs for that, it's less so. We're talking to more sophisticated folks. And so as a meta observation in all of this is bring technical folks in more quickly and earlier in your company life cycle. And then you can sort of front run a lot, a lot of these concerns. Worst case scenario, to be frank. If it turns out you don't need all of those roles, you can likely find the uh, roles and responsibilities on the product and engineering side. So there's really no downside to this. So let's talk about the impact to your customers. Obviously, within PDL, there's, I'm sure, a lot of operational improvements. But you know, this is really all about making your customers more successful by you know giving them the resources that they need. So what have you heard from customers? Like, What, what is this setting your customers up for in the long run? A lot of our customers have responded very positively or, and this is more typical for technical folks, they haven't complained. <laughs> the adage of no news is good news certainly does apply. We've had cases in the past where, and this is prior to, to doing a lot of these things where customers are like, well, you know, I, I'm not really technical enough. Like you go need to do this for me or like, Hey, I'm not getting the value that I thought I would get. What did you sell me here? You never want to hear that. That's not ideal because ultimately, I think every company out there is in business to make their customers successful, right? Whether they have a team to do that or that's just uh, part of the ethos. So we've uh, gotten a lot of good feedback. You know, we every once in a while get an unsolicited note from from a customer saying, hey, XYZ person really helped me. Thank you so much. Like, this is great. We've also, you know, obviously we have competitors and a lot of our customers have either actively use some of our competitors. The data space is interesting. A lot of people buy from multiple vendors based on what we do. And consistently, the feedback has been, you guys are the only ones that are actually sitting down with us and, and helping us realize more value. You're helping us optimize. In some cases, you're actually helping us spend less. And we appreciate that because it builds trust. If you optimize your API queries and things like that, 
you may end up requiring less credits, therefore spend less. And a lot of other vendors, it wouldn't go the extra mile for that. What this does is it doesn't create revenue today or create more expansive opportunities right now, but it builds a ramp over the next two, three, four years when people will look back and say, well, who did the right things for us? And oh, well, it's People Data Labs. We've been a consistent partner in all of this. So before we get to our final wrap-up question, anything around this topic of you know bringing technical resources into the CSI, enabling customers, anything we haven't talked about that you think would be good to get in here? Maybe the last sort of piece in this, because it's kind of near and dear to my heart, because it is so difficult to hire some of these folks and to find them, we have a real challenge in getting people into the space. And there really isn't a college degree that you can go through that's going to prepare you to be either a sales engineer or a CSE or really a CS person, right? And so we need to do a better job collectively in the CS space to help bring people in and build sort of a talent pipeline. And so we're thinking about this even right now. We have some roles open that are very, very junior, more on the CSM side. These are people that we're willing to bring in that have relatable experience. Like, hey, you've been in, been in a restaurant space and you, you're great with customers, right? We'll give you a shot. Similarly, on the technical side, if you can show that you write great projects, like you have hobbies that are programming related, like show us what you got. Show us interesting things you may have done. And those are all means to kind of get through the door. There's no apprenticeship programs in a formal way in the space. And this is actually sort of unfortunately true across the tech industry. But we're thinking about ways to making that more accessible. So there's more young folks that come in or even people that are changing careers that have some relatable skills. So I think that's going to be critical as we go through this into the future, because with more SaaS and more ASS sort of companies out there, this is only going to be more difficult to fill going forward. For sure. Definitely sounds like a great initiative. The question I like to end these conversations off with for the folks at home listening What's something actionable that they can do today, tomorrow, that can get them one step in the right direction to making their organization more customer-centric? Take a look at your people. Talk to them and understand, hey, what do you see working for the customers? What do you enjoy doing? And what do you think is making the most impact? My high-level framing in anything that I do on a day-to-day basis is people will take care of your customers, which will take care of your shareholders. And ultimately, that's how you have to think about it. In that order, any other order, things tend to go wrong. And so talk to your people, talk to your customers, and then understand, like, are we doing the right things? Is this driving the outcomes that we're looking for? And is this serving our customers? That's pretty much all it comes down to. It's like, are we doing the right things for our customers? There could be some customers that are not a great fit, and you need to take a look at that too, and you need to be honest about that. Sometimes it's like 1%, 2% of your customer base that are consuming 50% of your company's resources. And then the question is like, is that for the right reasons or is that just a bad fit, right? And then you need to potentially have some tough conversations. So yeah, talk to your people, you know, understand what's going on and then talk to your customers and then action from there. That's great. Manuel, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This was awesome. The model that PDL has instituted isn't revolutionary. I'm sure there are plenty of other companies out there who take a similar approach. But there are also plenty of CS organizations that don't have the technical resources they need to be successful. Sure, they can often tap into the product team if necessary, but as Manuel has explained, that's usually not enough. Without all this living under one team, you have competing priorities. Product focuses on product. CS tries, and sometimes fails, to support the customer. I love Manuel's idea of a starting point for evaluating your CS team's needs. 
ask yourself, what recurring challenges initiate in CS but can't be solved within CS? Then ask yourself how to change that. In the case of PDL, it was about bringing in technical resources, but also might help you uncover other roles that need to exist within your CS organization. This starts with taking a good, hard look at how you run CS and understand what's getting in the way of serving your customers in the way that they need to be served. Maybe everyone just needs a little more engineering in their life.